0: Hi, from the more geographically distanced and socially distant Christian room, high above the slowly reopening Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Crawford, Crawford Award winning at Nivo on the Coot Street Podcast. And welcome, <laughs> welcome
1: Nee. We want to congratulate you on the Crawford Award for the Empress of Salt and Fortune. But what we really have to talk about is the Chosen and the Beautiful, which is coming out within days now, I guess.
2: Yes, just about a week or so. It's very exciting and very terrifying.
0: Uh, well, congratulations on it. It may be the prettiest book I've seen all year.
2: It's so pretty. Greg Ruth, who's the artist, um, they sent me a mock-up of the cover, and I w- my brain just stopped. It was so pretty.
0: <laughs> it, is, it looks like one of those books. And if, listeners, if you haven't the chance, go, follow one of the links from the from the show notes and see this stunning, beautiful thing. It's the kind of book you buy – this sounds terrible when you say we're not even sure you want to buy the book, you just want to have this pretty, gorgeous thing, and it's a terrific book. But anyway, hello, everybody.
1: Well, hello, I, hello. I'm so happy to be here today. Well, well one of the things that, before we're done with the uh, cover, I mean, I noticed when the uh, cover was announced, there were a lot of uh, tweets, a lot of anticipation for the Chosen and the Beautiful. Some of the tweets were like, I want the name of the model for that cover because she's gorgeous, uh, mm-hmm. and but the other the other thing which made me a little apprehensive before reading the novel was a number of people who apparently had been assigned The Great Gatsby um in high school. I suppose we should back up and explain to our listeners that The Chosen and the Beautiful is essentially a fantastical version of Gatsby retold from the point of view of of Jordan Baker who is of Vietnamese descent and queer and uh actually she fits pretty much within what we saw in the in, in the in the Fitzgerald novel in many ways.
2: Uh, she hasn't changed that much. She's still mean. She still has a very good time. Mm-hmm. She still uh, dumps Nick at the end or he dumps her, depending on who you believe.
1: The thing that uh, that made me apprehensive were tweets saying, uh, I hope you can fix what's wrong with that novel. All the people who had been forced to read the novel in high school and hate it. I happen to love it. And 20 pages into your book, I figured you must love it, too.
2: <laughs> I adore it. It's um, so... I read it. I was given it in high school the same way most uh, many American students are, mm. and I had I went into it with the same kind of anticipation I did for many of the other ones, which was with none at all. Mm. And then the same day that I got it, I was nearly run down in the uh, parking lot by a um, you know teenager in a car. Which oh. <laughs> it's not that exciting. That happened to me a lot. I was really bad at watching where I was going as a teenager. <laughs> But given how the book ended, it did sort of give me a certain resonance with it. So it became sort of my book. And it, given the fact that it was offered to me in an American Canons of Literature class, it's always been my book. So, yeah. And I don't think you can write something like Chosen if you don't love it, even if you are also very angry with it sometimes.
0: Well, I guess that's the thing. This, this is a story that is, if you like, it, it, it's it's the interstitial secret story around the rest of the story that we know. It's not a, a retelling of Gatsby, per se, is it?
2: I would say it's. Uh, I mean, we can we can also just use the word fanfic. I'm not too proud to use the word fanfic. I love it. Um, I would say that I stick fairly close to it, despite the yeah. uh, despite the demon's blood and the selling of your soul and the weather magic and the paper cutting magic. Uh, the actual through line remains the same. Yeah. It is um, it, it is a collision of strong personalities that have nowhere to go but but to break and um, and what happens and who gets to survive that. So I think that I actually follow it follow along pretty closely. It's just I've added a quite a few detours and a quite a few expansions along the way.
1: Well, there are lines of dialogue that are exactly the same. There are passages. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one of the things that I thought was just ingenious, uh, in, in a way it's a kind of secret history buried in the story of Gatsby. Toward the beginning, for example, and and I, I remembered sentences from Gatsby when I was, so I'd go back and check my, my old copy of Gatsby, but there's a scene toward the beginning when Jordan Baker first arrives uh, at, uh, at Daisy and Tom's house. And there's a breeze that causes their um, in in, in Fitzgerald, there's a breeze that causes their dresses to sort of flow up and then fall down again. And I think in Fitzgerald, he says something like it's as though they had just returned from a flight around the room. And Mm -hmm. in your novel, there's a flight around the room. There's (laughs) (laughs) no, it's,
2: It's it's one of the, it's one of those small rewards for anyone who is deeply in, invested in close reading Fitzgerald. Um, the best version of that, and the one that I'm already beginning to see myself, excuse me, the one that I'm already beginning to see myself get credit for, is after Nick and Gatsby have um, their first conversation, and Jordan's very smart little line is are we having a gay time now Mm -hmm. and i've already seen myself get credit for that one and that one's absolutely in the original so i've been trying to i've been trying to tell people no that one's not me that one's that one's actually fitzgerald Please,
1: but keeping in mind that 1925 gay meant something a little bit less specific than it does today
2: it's still a very smart line though it is still Mm. jordan Jordan is hinting at something although in the original i'm not precisely sure what she's hinting at Uh um but it's still there and it's still very pointy
1: well, there's another point that she makes. I don't, want, I don't want to geek out over the details about the novel, but I, I did. I, I said this in my review, which you'll see in a couple of days also, oh. that it does help to have read The Gatsby because there's another line that's very telling. Uh, you, you retain this business. Tom Buchanan, Gatsby's uh, – Daisy's husband, is a racist, mm-hmm. and he's enamored of this racial theory of the color. And, and the quotation – From Gatsby about the rise of the colored empires, or something, you retain that. But at the end of that, in Gatsby, Daisy says, Well, I guess it would better beat them down. You give that line to Jordan, who says, I guess you'll have to beat us down.
2: Right, right. Really clever. It was fun. It was so very fun to imagine who Jordan must be and to understand that this is the world she lives in and this is her defense for it, which is just to be as snarky and as casually mean about it as she can be.
0: Well, give us a picture, if you can, of where does The Chosen and the Beautiful start in real terms? Obviously, you'd read Gatsby in, in, in school. And probably reread it and reread it a bunch of times. As you come towards the the, the the copyright date that allows it all to be open to the world, at what point do you go? I'm going to actually try and write this story.
2: <laughs> okay, this you're going to like this. Um, <clears throat> essentially, what happens is I had the I, I had the the copyright uh, date uh, in my mind almost when I first. Um, read the book when, you know when I was a teenager mm-hmm. and then I forgot it for many years and I remembered it and I forgot it. And I had actually only been with my agent for about maybe, oh, maybe a year at that point, mm-hmm. Diana Fox over at Fox Literary. And she, and uh, I was actually writing another novel for her and she, we were just talking on the phone and she asked me if I had anything else going on. And mm-hmm. I think I, I think I told her it's like oh well I've always had this idea of doing a magical retelling of uh, the Great Gatsby and since the book the book is coming out of copyright next year and then she gets really quiet <laughs> and then she says me I want you to stop writing what you're writing and I want you to go write that instead I'm like okay that's fine <laughs> so I still I still have that unfinished half a novel that I'd like to get back to sometime but you know I got I got the chosen to get out of it and I can't really uh, I can't really say that that's a terrible thing.
1: But just A- to put things in context, you had already finished um, When the Tiger Comes Down the Mountain uh before this, as 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 well as The Empress of Salt and Fortune.
2: Actually, no. I think I sure. had written another novella before that, which w- would be further along on the Sane Hills canon. Um Tiger when The Tiger Came Down the Mountain came out after that. And I wrote The Chosen the Beautiful in about um, about a month of research and four months of straight writing. So it's it's all very confused. My first actual novel that I've ever written isn't coming out until next year.
1: So it's, it's a very funny little timeline. <laughs> this is a novel. This is a, one, what do you say to people who ask, should they have read The Great Gatsby before they read this?
2: If they want to. if it, That's up to them. I think that... I think that there's a little bit more fun to be had if you, if you do read it. I think that even without it, it's not hard to get the idea that these are very terrible people doing some very terrible things. And I figure that comes through just fine.
1: It does. Uh, and you realize, of course, that people, fan- especially fantasy and science fiction people, there are some who are going to read The Chosen and the Beautiful and be motivated to go back and read Gatsby. And they will then be reading Gatsby as a secret history within your novel.
2: <laughs> that is going to be very, very strange. Um, but I mean, that's, that's not necessarily inappropriate, because a lot of what I do in uh, The Chosen and the Beautiful, I'm really just opening up what Fitzgerald already put, what Fitzgerald already has in there. Fitzgerald writes so tight and so beautifully, right. and he's hinting for to, towards an audience that knows exactly what he's talking about. And even at a twenty-year remove, because you know, I don't know if you know about the history of The Great Gatsby when it got its real revival during World War II. It was
1: a flop um, when it came out. It, 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 it was a, it was a terrible it, flop. It did not earn out when he died.
2: No, it hadn't. And um, one of the darkest or darker funny uh oh stories that I heard was he and. Zelda actually heard about a performance of The Great Gatsby going up. And, of course, they addressed themselves to the nines to go to it. Mm-hmm. And they realized it's basically a college readers theater group that's doing it in like a, a small room in the student union, which uh. they were very gracious about. But that was a, that must have been a moment.
0: Oh,
1: yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, a couple of friends of mine went to see the reading some theater in New York about three or four years ago, did a staged uh. reading, uh, a, a dramatic staged reading of the whole thing, word for word. And a friend of mine who went to see it uh, said it was absolutely beautiful. It was absolutely uh, brilliant. It's not that long, actually, but it was. it's about four to six hours when you're reading it on stage, I guess.
2: It is It is about 42,000 words, and I just about doubled that length <laughs> uh, for Chosen. So weird facts that, that stick in your mind as you're, as you're uh, making the words happen.
0: So, I mean, Gatsby's a, a work from the great literary canon. Certainly the great American canon. How is it being a young reader at the time that you encountered the book, encountering the literary canon, and how important is it, do you think, to engage or not with it in some way so that you can find a space for everybody in it?
2: Um, this is actually something that I've thought about a lot because the whole time I was writing it, and honestly, um, a few times as I, as production is rolled out and as Tor has taken up um, the banner, as Tor does very skillfully, the question becomes, how dare you? <laughs> that is definitely one that I've asked myself. It's one that I have been asked. And the answer comes down to something very simple and greedy. It's ownership. Mm-hmm. Um american canon is something that is given to american students if you are a a public school student in the united states these things are given to you for some value of given as in you will not graduate if you do not read Mm -hmm. these you will not pass the ap tests if you do not have a thorough understanding of these books and um i grew up in the 90s uh i graduated you know high school class of 2000 and um what it comes right down to is the canon that I was given has no place for me in it. It has no place for for people who aren't white. It has no place for people who are queer. Mm -hmm. And that was what was given to me. And if it is a real gift, um, if it is something that is meant to enrich me, it's meant to make me say a better American, a better person, then it's my responsibility and my right to do what I want with it.
0: Is that also the real value of copyright expiring, do you think? There's a lot of talk about copyright, and I don't think about it over much, but I remember years ago talking to a friend of mine, and they were saying, the thing about co- uh, extending copyright too far is these these works belong in the culture, they come from the culture to some degree, and you get to repurpose and reconsider and, and you know, re-enrich them in many ways by doing exactly what you've done, by taking them and repurposing them.
2: Um. I can't really speak to the legal issues of copyright. It is something that I have not thought of very much on like a legal setting.
0: Sure. On
2: an emotion, on an emotional setting though, I feel you know it's. I'm not going to speak for any other writer, but when I wrote The Chosen and the Beautiful, this it was something like like I said, I couldn't have done it if I didn't love the if I didn't right. love the original novel, mm-hmm. and it does come from a place of realizing that there was something that was so deeply enjoyable about it, even if it was a troubling novel from the sure. time that I want to offer to other people and see if I could give it to them without that kind of lingering, kind of, what is Tom really saying here? And, you know, so on and so forth.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because, well, I mean, that's it? it. I mean, you couldn't write the, uh, this book without it being an act of love. And I think that's perhaps the things that so- someone who's not familiar with your work yet who encounters the book may be surprised by, that it genuinely is an act of love.
2: It's also an act of paying my rent. So, I mean, let's not give me too much credit. (laughs) um, Yes,
1: absolutely. uh, Yeah, it's not and it's not something that's unheard of. I mean, uh, we're we're thinking we're thinking of Gatsby as being a new thing because it's newly out of copyright. But there are many cases of, of, of classic novels, not necessarily fantasy and science fiction. I want to get into the fantasy element in a minute. Of, uh, of rewriting or reinterpreting or dialoguing with earlier. There's a novel by Gene Reese called The Wide Sargasso Sea, which is basically a prequel to um, uh, to what am I thinking? Well, the, Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre. Uh, uh, Peter Carey uh, in Australia wrote a novel uh, which was basically what happened to Magwitch uh, during the parts of Great Expectations that weren't there. So this is not an uncommon kind of thing. What's uncommon no. is the cross dialogue between fantasy and. Mainstream classic literature, it seems. Mm -hmm. We we, we, we see a lot of stuff about how there's a thing that's been going on for decades about science fiction is in dialogue with itself. And science fiction stories respond and fantasy stories respond to other fantasies. But fantasy stories that respond to mainstream classics are comparatively rare.
2: Um, This is the funny thing about about uh, reading The Great Gatsby the great gatsby for a lot of us already is the fantasy it is the fantasy of being wealthy it is the fantasy of being free and it's the fantasy of living in what was not but which we are encouraged to look of think of as a as a simpler wilder more romantic time so i haven't i don't think i've taken it too far i mean if you think about our fantasy of uh of New York City in the 1920s, right? I, I, you know, I've done the research. It was a very dark place. Sometimes um, it was, it was very harsh. It was very ugly, but not that. That's not the. That's not the fantasy that Fitzgerald gives us, and it wasn't the fantasy that he was living. It was the fantasy he was living or tried to live, um, it but was, it wasn't his reality
1: either. But my argument is, it's a fantasy he was very critical of, also, uh, mm-hmm. and, and one of the things which I, I, this is being speak me speaking as a midwesterner as are you um mm-hmm. that's i think is an important theme in the novel that most new yorkers overlook and that is the midwestern critique of new york society i mean fitzgerald came from, he came from minneapolis he went to school in minneapolis but he was everybody thinks of him as a, a jazz age new yorker he was mm-hmm. very skeptical of everything that was going on in new york uh there's that one phrase he was that, very
2: skeptical but he very much wanted to be a part of he it wanted you, to be you a part of it. you can't escape that longing
1: right um so so there's that love-hate relationship, which I think is the love-hate relationship between the Midwest and and, and, and the East. There's a, there's a part in your novel which is not – you don't make a big deal out of it, but it fascinates me that magic is kind of draining out of the East and moving westward. What did you mean by that?
2: Uh, I probably had written – I probably had read an article about Manifest Destiny and what Americans feel entitled to <laughs> and just threw it in. Uh, I – there is so many things in this novel that I read very quickly and that I just sort of assimilated into the worldview, but that's part of it. There is this part, uh, part of it is also the fact that you're right. I am a native Midwesterner, and I reject the idea that magic only exists on the coast. <laughs> Let's put it that
1: way. There was a famous story that I used to love. I, 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 will, I will stop doing this in a minute. Uh, <laughs> James Thurber, another Midwesterner and another actually unsung fantasy writer, Um, who came from Columbus, Ohio, and became a famous New Yorker writer, was at one point got into an argument with the er editor of The New Yorker, a guy named Harold Ross, the founding editor of The New Yorker. And and Thurber's argument was all the great American novels come from the Midwest. He was talking about Mark Twain. He was talking about Huckleberry Finn. He was also talking about Booth Tarkington. And he was talking about himself. And Ross, the editor of The New Yorker, said, if all the great writers come from the Midwest, how come they all moved to New York? And Thurber said, (laughs) Thurber said, because the competition was too hard <laughs> out.
0: Let me ask, you mentioned earlier that uh, this was fanfic of uh, the, the Great Gatsby. What's your relationship to fanfic? It kind of echoes in with what I'm talking about, copyright. I mean, it's, it, fanfic is where enthusiasm meets creativity and where the culture blends, particularly in uh, genre-related circles. What's fa- fanfic meant for you?
2: For me, fanfic is um, both a place to sharpen my skills as a writer. It is a place for me to explore other people's ideas and to find out what makes them unique and what makes them universal. Mm. Um, fanfic is also very much a community. It is a place where um, the, where there is a certain amount of professionalism that should never be reached. Uh, it's it's it goes down to the money line. You, mm. you know, you do not make mm. money off of off of. Uh, of a fanfic that isn't out of copyright let's put it that way um and part of it is the fact that because most fanfic is specifically non-monetized there's a sort of wonder in being able to play with it to basically be good in ways that don't involve money which is a hard thing to get i think if you're an artist in this day and age where you mm-hmm. know everyone has everyone's got a bit of hustle everyone's got you know everyone's got a side gig and um while you can take the skills from fanfic and stretch them into other avenues uh, very easily, um, uh, uh, there's a goal of being good without being paid. And that's that's something that's very special in our world, I think.
0: It also occurs to me that although it's not widely stated in this way, It's a classic part of how any writer learns to write. I mean, I've heard writers in the past say, you know, things like, you've got to write a million words of junk to get it out of your system so you can learn how to write. And you've got to write your influences out. You've got, you know, like, I know people said, I had to write my Theodore Sturgeon story. I had to write my Philip K. Dick story. I had to get it out of my system. To some degree, it seemed to me, that's also the function that writing fanfic can perform. It can actually allow you to begin to find your own voice in these spaces
2: it teaches you to very, to very much pay attention to, to uh, voice specifically. And it's wonderful. Um, a couple years ago, I went back and I reread the jungle book and I just sat there just completely stunned o- over how much I had, I realized I had learned um, from the jungle book mm. and how much I'd carried forward without noticing at all. And, uh, I don't know how noticeable it is. It's something that I actually would like to ask people sometime. It's like, so how close am I to this? Could you tell me please? Um, but it was it was this wonderful re- revelation in terms of where I had learned lots of fun tricks and where I had learned to speak about things. Hmm?
0: Was it Gary? No, Gary's gone, gone. Looks curious. Maybe he can't hear us. Can you hear us? Oh, oh I we'll can't Well, we'll cut hear. this little bit out. I'm okay. not hearing anything. Oh, can you
2: hear that? Oh.
0: While he, while he can't hear us, we, we might continue for a moment. Um. <laughs> Tell me, where did you begin as a reader? Where did your version of the reading world begin to form? What was it that gra- that grabbed your attention?
2: Um. Well, um, I learned to read fairly early. I was a fairly quick reader as a kindergartner, and there was this enormous fairy tale book when I was in kindergarten that I'm not even sure why it was there because it was easily an inch thick and the words were very small, but. I either liked the image of myself with it as a tiny child, but I remember sitting with it. I don't remember reading it, but I remember the tactile quality of it. I remember touching it, and I remember something very um, real in my head clicking, going, yes, yes, I want to do this, whatever it is. And I had no concept of it. I liked the reality of books, and I wanted to be a part of that.
0: Was yours a bookish household growing up?
2: Uh, it was not actually. Um, my parents, um, my parents uh, read, but they were also reading in Vietnamese and Chinese, which I'm actually not literate in either, really. So my books all came from outside of the house. Um, so we were we were uh, big fans of the library, of course. I had a neighbor who passed on to me every single uh, National Geographic she ever got, which was mm-hmm. which was a wonderful gift for a child. A lot of a lot of very mm-hmm. frightening naked pictures of people and, 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 and things I, I wasn't quite i wasn't quite ready for but you know it was it was still a wonderful gift
0: and i, I guess at some point you encounter what well, science fiction and fantasy for the first time i mean you talked about the book of fairy tales in kindergarten at some point you're, you encounter uh what is it is, is it bradbury is it other stuff where, where does that start for you
2: christopher stashiff in the um in the late 80s actually um christopher stashiff uh I found his books at a garage sale and I really liked the mechanical horse on them mm-hmm. and I was so excited and I really enjoyed them. And so I went to, um, I went to the bookstore to try to find some more and th- they quickly batted me over to the, um, to the spec fic, uh, side of side of things. And I never really looked back, but I also had a very personal, uh, incident with Christopher Stash. Can I talk oh, about not. that? Or is that another yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So um, I actually knew his daughter. I went to school in Champaign, and his family lived there for uh, several years. And I, his daughter uh, Eleanor, was uh, doing a community theater um, for, for the local t- television station. And she said, "Okay, me, if you come and do this part for me, I can get you my dad's autograph." And I'm like, oh. "Yes, yes, I really want that to happen." So the big day comes. I'm dressed up in probably a curtain.
1: <laughs> and
2: she's left me in the, in the living room with Christopher Stashev, who, you know, I was a, I was in college by that point. He'd mm-hmm. been my hero for well over a decade. And I'm just sitting there with a brand new copy of The Warlock in spite of himself in my bag. And we are making the most painfully Midwestern small talk ever. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Wow. And, um, and finally, Ele- Eleanor comes back in, takes a good look at both of us, and she says... And she says, me, do you have something for my dad to sign? And I'm like, yes, I do. And she's like, dad, do you have something for, would you like to sign for me? And he's like, yes, I would. and it was just it was like i'm like oh this is what being a writer is this is painfully awkward but i still have that i still have that signed book and i I, and i love it
0: has that shaped how you approach writers you know these days i mean i have to say i had a couple of experiences i'm i'm on the other side of the world so you don't see i didn't see a writer alive until i was my 20s oh sure um was your first but the first time you do encounter a real living, breathing writer, you're like, I wouldn't want to bother that person. I wouldn't want to be in their way. And then you find, as I'm sure you're, you're beginning to find, that if somebody wants to say nice things to you about your work, it's not a horrible thing.
2: I, I don't know. It's, it's been so strange. Everyone has been so very kind. And I'm not used to people coming up to me and saying, you know, uh, like, um... I think the Empress of Salt and Fortune is giving me an idea of it. It feels like a very important book to a lot of people yeah. and I never want to take that away, but I also kind of, every time someone tells me about it, I have to say, okay, do you know what I just, I just sewed through my finger. I think you want to reassess your heroes a little more, a little more carefully <laughs> I sewed straight through my fingernail recently. It
1: was, it was genuinely
2: terrible. Yeah. Well, there's a, uh, actually,
1: We haven't really talked about the Empress of Salt and Fortune, but mm. uh, because it's, uh, it's very different from the chosen and the few. You're, you're clearly using uh, uh, Chinese and Vietnamese uh, narrative traditions. Although I notice one thing in common: you're fascinated by narrators, by unreliable narrators, narrators within narrators. Uh, as, and the Empress of Salt, and Fortune has like a narrator within a narrator within a narrator, um, and 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 that mm-hmm. that may be something that's related to oral tech. Unique, but it strikes me that in the chosen and the few, you've also got um, Gary very, chosen
0: the beautiful,
1: the cho- chosen the beautiful, chosen in the few. <laughs> what is that? Probably a book about something the Marines funny. or something. I said. Alternate, alternate universe <laughs> uh, version of, of my book. Exactly. Um, but 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 again, there's there's a, a very much a consciousness of what. Jordan knows and what she doesn't know and what she's told by Nick and what she's told by Daisy. So you've always got this question of how much of who says what to whom can we believe?
2: Um, I don't think I've ever met a reliable narrator. (laughs) (laughs) Why would I write about them? Right, exactly. I mean, the more we learn about history, the more we know that history is written by the victors. Um, Every single story we we are given, I think, as people, as just people living on our planet, we have to ask who's telling it. So I don't know if I have any space in my head or my heart for anything considered a reliable narrative so- Sounds fake.
0: You're right. Well, you were saying that um, when the when the uh, the Empress of Salt and Fortune was what started after the Chosen and the Beautiful, is that right? Um,
2: yes. I believe it went – no. Well, Right. Uh, I, I have to work out my own timeline. The first novel I wrote, wrote was Siren Queen, followed almost immediately by Empress of Salt and Fortune, and which was followed by Chosen and the Beautiful. No, which was followed by uh, a nameless and somewhat unloved Seeing Hills novella, which was followed by Chosen in the Beautiful, which was followed by. Okay, it, it, there's been a lot of writing over the last three years, is what I'm saying.
0: <laughs> Where does but- <laughs> the story for the Empress of Salt and Fortune begin?
2: Um, When Tor said that they needed novellas that were between 20,000 and 40,000 words, and I realized that I could write 20,000 words. Uh, so it's, it's
0: really that mechanical thing. It's, it's all the prompts that push things.
2: I'm a deeply mechanical writer. It's, you know, you tell me that a, no- a novel is between 80,000 words and, 100, and 120,000 words. I think I can write that and um the boundaries of the form are are wonderful because I mean the joke on my website is that you know I can there's only so much damage I can do in 20,000 words but I can fit a lot in there I yeah. can you know so um yeah no for me it's very much mechanics and I had the shape of the story and I thought this would probably work so
1: I went for I went after it well the thing about um, I I I I let me okay uh the thing about the Empress of Salt and Fortune, uh, and I, I have to confess, I've not read When the Tiger Came Down the Mountain. But mm-hmm. but it's been pointed out uh, by others that yes, the Empress of Salt and Fortune is 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 a wonderful novella at novella length, but it could have been two hundred thousand words. It's an epic fantasy uh, without the stuffing, more or less.
2: I don't know. There's, I think it would. I think it would be a delightful epic novel. But I'm not the person to write it. I don't, I've never read it. I've never written anything that long yet.
1: <laughs> Some of us are grateful, actually, not that not that you haven't done it, but one of the things you're showing in that story is what the bones of a fantasy epic can be, uh, in the way that they might be in in, in looking at ancient historical texts, where the things things are, are summarized, but they're not. Hundreds of pages of description of clothing, and I know people love that. There are people who are in love with descriptions of clothing and food and so forth and so on. But I really like the story to get along, and that story moved right along, and when it was over, I thought, this is a really big story in a really small space.
2: Yeah. Um it's. I mean, I've heard it called trick writing, and I I feel very proud of that. Actually, I feel like I feel like I managed to get away with telling people exactly what I was thinking, and I only had to do it for twenty thousand words, and then I was done, and I got to go to something else.
0: <laughs> One thing I want to touch on, but that goes back a moment, is how important is it having something like Tor.com existing in the world to write for, I tend to believe that we, when we look at the history of the field, one of the things that we don't understand well enough are all of these additional non-obvious prompts that create things and create a space for them to occur. And right now, particularly Tor, but other p- publishers as well are doing this kind of thing. How much of what, when the tiger came down the mountain, became the Empress of the Fortune, the Chosen the Beautiful, is because of that space?
2: It has everything to do with that space and it has everything to do with um, people like my editor, uh, Rishi Chen, for example, um, specifically deciding that they were going to look for voices that did not match what they might've seen previously, Mm -hmm. um, that wanted to make room, that wanted to say, these are not the only stories we've been telling, What what else can we do? And I have nothing but respect and gratitude for Tor as being a person who asked, for being the people that asked those questions um, when I was, like I said, I grew up in the 90s. And um, I'm sure you, you gentlemen both remember what the uh, bookstores were like at the time and what, you know, or the section at Barnes and Noble were like. And I remember looking around and I was thinking, huh, I suppose the only stories that feature Asian people in them are stories that deal with identity in a contemporary setting. And I wasn't even mad. I just, I, I just thought, I just looked at the world that was around mm-hmm. me and I didn't see anything else. So obviously that was the way the world was. And who has a great deal more vision than I do, and um, and they are they are they have vision and they're ambitious and they're reaching out and I think that's wonderful and they're going to be touching a lot of people I think with just with the choices they make and the voices they push out there.
0: What was the process of editing the book, right, the chosen and beautiful say like? How much was it what you expected?
2: Um, let's see. Uh, the chosen and beautiful was a fairly straightforward edit i believe um it only i think it took uh there we we let it cool off for a little while and then i think we went into edits and i was asked to shift a few things i was asked to write a better uh, uh, a better (laughs) better or different ending depending on i would say it's better the Mm -hmm. this is a better ending um but you know i'm i'm a writer who takes direction pretty easily so when i'm asked to you know, change something, uh, my response will be, okay, why don't you just let me take five or six runs at it and you just pick the one you like best. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's 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 fairly straightforward. And uh, I don't have, I, I don't think I have a lot of ego about my work. There are some things that I would refuse to change, but working with Diana Fox, working with Rishi Chen, we're basically on the same wavelength in terms of what we feel is the important thrust of a story and what can be changed and what shouldn't.
0: I guess partly I'm I'm thinking that it's got to be a journey though. I mean, you start off in the mid 2000s writing short fiction exclusively and, you know, sort of, you know, reasonably short, short pieces, six, eight thousand words long, going through from mid-2000s through to the mid-2010s, I guess, 2015, 16, 17, when at least publicly, that's when we first start to see something a little longer happening. That's got to be a bridging leap of faith kind of thing creatively that you can push on and on and make a bigger thing and have it not feel like a chunk of pieces.
2: Um, that is, it, it's sort of a, a way of, um, it makes me sometimes feel like, uh, as a genre kind of working backwards, because there was a time when, uh, short stories were how was, how everyone made their living. Uh, Fitzgerald mm-hmm. made most of his money off of short stories. Uh, Dickens made most of his money off of, uh, serials. And, um, I really, really love the fact that we're kind of embracing the short form because everyone's attention span has been kind of shot to bits lately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just having the novella has been, has been really lovely. Um, and like I said, it's, um. I wrote uh, Siren Queen before I wrote the chosen and before I wrote Empress and it's been a very weird <laughs> a very weird progression, but there is a logic there. there is a very strange logic to it.
1: Well tell us a little bit about the Siren Queen because that's coming out next year, I believe.
2: Uh, yeah, that is a Chinese American actress who is in Hollywood that runs on fairyland rules, basically. Which started because I started looking up the history of Hollywood, and it is so incredibly dark. And uh, I got into the, and um, I still, I still have this conversation on chat saved with a very good friend of mine. And you know, the thing is, if you're a writer, you get to make so many things your friend's problem. Mm-hmm. Um and I still remember I'm like, huh, isn't it kind of weird that both Fairyland and Hollywood basically have you give up your true name and yeah, you should work with a mm-hmm.
1: you should work with a suit. Good point. And then it just
2: and then it just starts all start all falling into place with um with kingdoms and and magic and um the stories we're we're told and the stories mm-hmm. we're given and the ones we create. And I think that Luli is a very different character from Jordan. Luli is the main character of Siren Queen. She's a lot more focused on survival. She's actually had to work for a living, which Jordan has never done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it'll be a, a different and very enjoyable experience for anyone who's coming off of uh, cho- coming off Chosen.
0: Well, Thinking then, about and listening. Sorry, Gary. Oh no, no, go ahead and see what you're going to say. I was going to say, listening to you describe the book, it made me think. I mean, in a sense. Uh, not in the contemporary marketing sense, but in a sense, uh, The Chosen and the Beautiful is an urban fantasy. <laughs> and it sounds like, you know, Siren Queen is very much an urban fantasy, particularly in that classic mid-80s mode that came out of the Terry Windling Ace school. And oh, I'm
2: right, of- like uh, Borderlands. Those
0: yeah, Borderlands, uh, oh. the, the Charles de Lintz books, uh, stuff like uh, The Wizard of Pigeons, the Megan Lindholm book, those kind of things. And so mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious, was that something that you were, that you're familiar with and read through? Or is this just one of those things where being able to use the tools of fantastic to approach a story in the modern world allows you to unpack the modern world more?
2: i think that's probably started off with saying that dragons are cool yeah um fair it's, because if, if i can write about magic why wouldn't i if i could if i can write about if i can write about deals with the devil why wouldn't i um it's it's exactly where my interests go it's what i like to read um as you may have guessed from the happy face i made uh i loved urban fantasy uh you know back in the 80s and 90s uh the border town books um mercedes lackey back in the day mm. um It was just, and, and I've, you know, I've lived in cities my whole life. I've never, you know, I've, I've never lived on a farm. I've never lived in the forest. And when we're looking for stories, we want touch points that anchor us. And I'm not anchored by trees. I'm anchored by my public library and I'm anchored by my post office and the very nice grocery store and the less nice grocery store that I'll go to because
1: it's closer, Mm -hmm. you know? I want to go back to the Siren Queen for a minute because uh, when you were describing it, the thing that the thing that came to mind was there was a, a, a mini series last year, I think a Ryan Murphy series called Hollywood, which was mm-hmm. like the history of Hollywood with a which was essentially a fantasy because it ended up as a fantasy. But one of the subplots uh, was about probably the only Asian actresses most people could have named in the '30s, Anna Mae Wong, uh, and. It tried to deal with that issue uh, in, in a way. It didn't deal with it as completely as it might have, I suppose, because I know one of the things that has been a, I used to have this friend who was actually a dean of a uh, a law school somewhere who was also a uh, historian of, of uh, Asian Americans in cinema. And one of the points he was making out was that so many Asian characters in the 30s and 40s were played by non-Asian actors. Uh, Mr. Modo was played by, I forgot Peter Laurie maybe or something like that. Um and 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 so the idea of being in a society and outside of the society at the same time switches a theme kind of in The Chosen and the Beautiful and a theme kind of in uh, The Empress of Salt and Fortune sounds like the outsider insider dynamic is something that you seem to return to.
2: Uh yeah, w- once again, why wouldn't I? It's um it's when you are actually standing as an outsider, it does give you a different point of view than than what people who are on the inside might have. Um, it's also a good place to operate from because the expectations become very different, and they're not the standard ones. They might be very negative ones, but it also gives you something to push back against, which is very which I've always felt is a very interesting place to be writing from. Um, the laws and strictures of Hollywood. When I went into them, um, my I believe uh, Siren Queen it, it would be set up. Uh, post post the arrival of the um of the haze code for example okay. and mm-hmm. you have these you have these immutable laws you have these rules and you have the fact that destruction kind of waits if those rules are broken unless you can break them right and that's a lot of a lot of that is what um uh lily way who's the main character of chosen mm-hmm. uh of the main character of um siren. Of siren queen is dealing with is how do i break the rules and how do i break the rules right
1: and mm-hmm.
2: and that's what eventually does help her triumph against the uh,
1: the fairy kings of Hollywood. It sounds fascinating. Now, have have you gone back? You say you drafted that or written that before The Chosen and the Beautiful? Have you?
2: That was. Yeah, that was my first novel.
1: Have you redone it since uh, since that first draft?
2: Uh, we're going into edits this month, actually. Uh-huh. So that ought to be pretty exciting. Um, I think it, I think it's fairly strong as it is, but I'm really looking forward to the chance to get back into it, you know, just even with uh, the skills I've picked up in the last few years. Mm-hmm. It is my very first novel. It's the one that got me my agent. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, it was entered into Angry Robot's novel contest, which you can actually get into unagented, which is mm-hmm. very cool. Um, and it apparently came kind of close, so I thought maybe I was onto something.
0: Cool. Do you feel like you're a different writer than you were when you wrote it?
2: Hopefully, I'm a better writer.
0: <laughs> that,
2: that's, that's the hope across the board. It's um, uh, I think that I think I might be a little better at getting my point across. I think I have. I think I actually have editing help now, which I didn't before. Um, Empress was turned into Rishi. Rushi was the first person who'd ever seen uh, Empress ever. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. I wrote it and I sent it to her. So um, I think it's going to be much stronger than what I could create, you know, at 4 a.m. on my own in my apartment. It has the eyes of some of some professionals I
1: trust. Writers must it. love your attitude <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: I take edits pretty well. It's uh, it's you know I, I do not know everything.
0: <laughs> I guess I mean I'm, I'm, I'm interested as well because you know it's my observation that writers don't get better on a gra- a gradient. They get better on start you know like they 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 try something that pushes them they learn something new and then they're better for a chunk of time and then they do that again and you can generally see that in most writers over their period of time and so i could well imagine that just writing work that gets talked about then having to talk and explain your process to somebody else makes you understand your own process better
2: i I've been doing a lot of interviews and I don't know how I feel about them at this point. It's, it, it's, it's wonderful. This has been, this has been lovely, but it's also um, there's also a certain amount of really you're speaking with me as if I know something. It seems like a mistake. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but Yeah. Overall, I think it's um, for me. It's always just words on the page, and that's the only thing that matters. It's the only thing that makes me better. It's certainly never made me worse. And I think that occasionally talking about things makes me worse as I try to as I try on theories and, and uh, take them off again. Uh, overall, I think that hopefully I, I'm a better writer than I was before, and hopefully that I have earned enough trust from my readers that they're willing to come along with me for 200 words or, mm-hmm. or I'm sorry, 200 pages or uh, 300 pages or or or, um, or, or just
0: 100. As a new writer whose career has really kicked off, has happened in the 21st century, how has it been entering the field? Has it been a welcome ex- experience? Has it been a difficult experience? I know you've had a good experience, you've, you've said, with Tor.com and Roshi, which doesn't surprise me because she's fabulous. Well, That's great. Um, how has that been for you?
2: It has... I think it's been a very good experience. I don't think there has been a better time for me to get into into writing. Um, My first real exposure to professional spec fic writing was uh, honestly about maybe twelve years ago, back during the Live Journal days. Mm -hmm. And things um, and I got a sort of you know I got a sort of spy's eye view of uh, what the process was like and what people were going through. I don't think I would have coped very well if I had if I published my novel if I tried to publish ten years ago. I think that there is a much better engagement of an audience that is looking for my work these days. I think that um, publishers are being to sit up and realize exactly what kind of audience they're leaving on the table, which I don't think they quite understood the same way 10 years ago. Um, And, you know, it's still, it's still a work in process, a a work in progress as we go on. But I've also been publishing short fiction more or less in that whole time period. Um, So it's, I've gotten like, I've gotten like this sort of microcosm, View of that, and uh, I've worked with I've worked with fantastic editors. I've worked with editors that I care about, that I still care about, and uh, respect very much. And overall, I'm really glad to see that they're the ones who have come into nature with us, so to speak. Okay.
1: Are you curious about whether the readers who loved uh, The Empress of Salt and Fortune and the Tiger came, when the Tiger came down the mountain are going to? Also love the chosen and the beautiful because they're very different kinds of fantasies.
2: I hope they do, um, but I think there's going. To, I think that what we're realizing about what I write and what I like to write is, while there are a couple themes that stay that stay consistent, mm-hmm. um, Tiger is still a very different um, animal from Cho- from um, Empress. I saw that when I was writing when I was reading my reviews, where you know people were both happy and unhappy about that. And I think with number three, as we come out, I'm like that one's still that one's still different from the other two. So hopefully they're they're there for the things that um, that I feel are important that are consistent throughout. But I'm also just resigned to the fact that people will have um, favorites among my kids. Let's say.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, it's, it's something when you get further in your career, if you talk to people who've been around for a long time, you will you will find uh, everybody asks Joe Haldeman, 50 years later, why don't you write another Forever? Or everybody asks Samuel R. Delaney, why don't you write another uh, Triton or Ballad? Uh, there, there's no way you can escape the fact that people who love your novels or your novellas want more of the same, and you're not going to give it to them, are you?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no i i want to, i am very grateful for that love i am grateful for i am very much grateful for any time or attention that people care to give me but i can't do anything but be myself and i can't write uh, you know if i wanted to write other people's stories i would i'd be a ghost writer and that would <laughs> and, that, and probably be making some, making some cash off that and that's fine <laughs>
0: well i think that sorry go no you go ahead Okay. Well, I think writers and critics tend to look for a narrative in the history of events that may or may not be there for the people who actually experienced them, right? And I look, and I think that it looks from the outside as though you and a bunch, a group of other writers, are part of a kind of cohort that have arrived in the last five to 10 years and are roughly going through time together. This happens generationally. It happened back in the eighties with the cyberpunk's and so on and so forth. Do you feel a part of a group at this time? Do you feel like there's something around you and the, the writers, you know, that, that groups you together in time?
2: Um, I think there's one emerging, although uh, I'm actually so bad at social media, I can I couldn't really even hazard it at a members list. But I will say that um, I was very proud to have Empress come out on the same day as Kellen Spera's Dossel oh. and Nino Cipri's uh, Finna. Um, uh, it was just, it, it just felt very right for those to basically be uh, Empress's uh, sibling books mm-hmm. in many cases. And I always I kind of, I've always kind of felt like if I ever met them, I'd have to like take us all out for dinner or something <laughs> like that. Uh, but it, there, there's a kind of a weird kinship with it. And I'm like, I either have to, I either have to feed them or I have to challenge them to a duel i don't know which is the appropriate appropriate response here and someone should probably tell me before i get it wrong uh but no it's this is a wonderful time to be publishing what i am publishing and i'm so excited to see everyone else doing uh everyone else coming out with books that i think would have had a very hard time even 10 years ago
1: well, I think one of is the, it, Some of that goes back to what you were saying earlier about, uh, and, and I, I was missing part of this because my audio went off, but when we started talking about fanfic, I mean, one of the mm-hmm. things that fanfic can do, whether, it, whether you call it that or not, is make space for people within earlier works. I mean, one of the things that The Chosen and the Beautiful does is make a space for a queer Asian woman in an American classic and show that she fits in pretty well. It works just about as well as, uh, as having a transplanted Midwesterner like Nick fits into it. So, so making a space for, uh, for yourself or making a space for people that you want to make a space for is an important function. And from what you're saying about the Siren Queen, it sounds like you've got a thing going on about, for lack of a better term, about American glamour. Uh, I'm, I'm American glamour in the roaring 20s and, 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 and the wealth of uh, East Egg and West Egg. And American glamour in, what, 20s and 30s Hollywood, um, mm-hmm. and making spaces for people who have been excluded from the histories of those spaces.
2: It's so interesting that uh, the phrase that we all use is making is making space, which I think is very important. It's giving making space, giving a voice. Right. But here's this funny thing that I learned about um, in the course of my research. A lot of times I've been told throughout history that Vietnamese people weren't in the United States until after the war. Right. And then when I looked it up, I realized, wait, that's not the case at all, because there have always been wealthy Vietnamese Mm. tourists. And there have always been, um, especially when the French steamships came in, there have always been Vietnamese in this country. They actually wrote travel logs. They're hilarious. Huh. I love them so much. Right. Um, you know, they're talking about like um, these tourists are talking about coming into Louisiana and just being so excited to see uh, to see New Orleans. And, you know, then they go home and they talked about how the food wasn't really. That good. <laughs> so, you, you know, I mean, part of it is giving is, you know, making a space, but part of it is also shining a light on what is properly already there. It's the world, the world does not look like what we were given. What we were given no. in in Great Gatsby. So, I want to deliver a world which is, which in some ways it's fantastical, but it was already there as well. You know, someone like Jordan could have very easily existed and been running around causing so much trouble mm. in New York City.
0: So it's more filling out the picture, more uh, opening the scope of the of the image just a little bit to show the rest of what was already there.
2: Grabbing the camera and spinning it around. Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
1: Did you ever at any point in your, uh, when you were thinking about being a writer, beginning a writer, did you ever think of writing outside of the fantasy and science fiction arena? Did you have a temptation to just write mainstream fiction? Um, I,
2: well, if you, if a dragon is hallucinatory or it's a dream sequence, sure, why not? Okay, fine i i like to write what i do and um i usually think of genre a little bit later and the wonderful thing about having an agent is now this is all diana's problem and she can tell me (laughs) you know that's that's not a thing and or she can say yes yes do that um i i don't know where it's going to take me if i come up with if i come up with a decent um literary thick uh novel i wouldn't say no but I mean, but but do I get to have dragons? That's, that's the big
1: well, question. I've, I've, I've talked to other writers, and I, I, I probably that's shouldn't right. name them, but uh, who who have had the experience of wanting to write a mainstream novel, and somehow a dragon just kind of creeps into it. It just sometimes it happens to some people. <laughs> just, just creeps into as they it. do.
2: Actually, I will say this, I would, I, my temperament for it is, is very strange and I'm not very confident, but romance is doing some incredible things like in terms of, in terms of pushing the boundaries on genre. Mm -hmm. Um, I've seen some incredible, incredibly good writing come out of romance, like just within the last 10 years. And, you know, if, I, if I'm going to get my paws all over something, it'd probably be that.
0: So let me ask you, because it's a very fanfic question to ask. What's your favorite mm-hmm. dragon?
2: My favorite dragon is probably casual from Patricia Reedy's Dealing with Dragons. Okay,
0: cool. That is a very specific, a into, right to the tip of your fingers kind of answer. <laughs> yeah, it's right there. <laughs>
2: Fantastic, Patricia Reedy is Patricia, Patricia Reedy is great, and uh, for uh, so many young women uh, of my acquaintance, uh, dealing with dragons was was an important
0: one. Actually, that makes me think just for a second because you've, you've name checked Mercedes Lackey and, and Patricia Reed right else. Do you think that, frankly, white male critics, when they talk about the history of the field and the evolution of influence, that they overlook a vast scope of influence that's not immediately apparent to them?
2: Absolutely. I mean. We, we are the people we are, and most knows the people who are like us, and some people have the privilege of being able to say, of being able to say that their experience is universal when it's not. Absolutely. Um, uh, Amy Tan does not get the credit she deserves for being a fantasist, um, uh, as a for example. Um, Although she was, in, yeah. she
1: was in a band with Stephen King, so she gets points for that.
2: Was. Do you know the first time I heard that, that I that didn't the first time i heard of the rock bottom remainders i think i didn't understand it like i was like that's a thing that's a thing that happens <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes B- back in the day when people came together and the aba was a big massive thing and you could have a band made up of writers who wanted to be musicians because it seems like every creative person has another thing that they wish they could do other than the thing that they do actors want to be singers singers want to be actors writers want to be you know well some writers want to be out, out in the public or some are more happy being hidden away
2: i want to be a carpenter <laughs> okay well, that's yeah. that's, a,
0: that's, a, that's a thing you could do that
2: yeah no there, there are classes i could take now that the now the things are opening back up again that's on the table
0: <laughs> actually so okay well i guess i should say we're getting slow, towards the end of our hour you know bit by bit uh you know the the, the book will be out in the stores next week is that right
2: mm-hmm. yep yep uh, so, next, that, so that uh, means Tuesday, that, yeah. after the next one yep
0: so readers can you know follow links that will be in our show notes so they can pre-order the chosen and the beautiful now or they can you know engage in an act of brinksmanship and order it next week, which would be you know frankly mad. this when they could order it now but uh, are you are you pleased with the book?
2: I'm in love with my book, which feels very strange to say, but I love it i I love the work that went into it. I love the the time and the effort that um, everyone who's worked on it has put into it it has I don't think until you. I, I think until you've gone through the process yourself, you don't realize how much work goes into a release like this one. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I have had so many people who have loved the book with me, who have supported it and championed it and adored it, um, and and I can't do anything less than love it.
1: <laughs> well, it's, it's a fascinating. It's a fascinating discussion. I mean, the book itself is a discussion. It's a. It's 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 a dialogue with a novel which. Uh, which we both love, you, you, you love and I love, and there are problems with it and there are things about it that need to be argued with, which is what we're supposed to do with novels in the first place, right? We argue with them. We, we figure out the parts that we like and the parts we don't like. I, I think the thing, as I said at the beginning of, of the podcast, that uh, impressed me about the novel, it shouldn't have surprised me, but uh, and that is the integrity with which you treated Fitzgerald's original text. Um, and that is not, do- in other words, the worst case scenario, the worst thing I imagine might have happened, would have been Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, um, which is which is not a bad uh, travesty. Actually, there's a technical term in theater called travesty, which is what that was. But the problem with that, which is not a problem with your book, uh, that I had was that you should not try to make fun of a writer who has a better sense of humor than you do in the first place. In other words, if you can't be funnier than Jane Austen, don't try. And <laughs> what, what it seems to me you were doing was respecting what Fitzgerald did right and calling him to task for, for some of the uh, Blindnesses in his work.
2: See, I will go go on, on record as defending *Pride and Prejudice* and zombies, just because the thing was a spectacle and it, it captured attention, and it really kind of made me think of what Longbourn would look like if we were if we were trying to defend it from zombies. Um, True. I think you have to go into it. You have to go into it with emotion, and whoever and I can't remember the specifics, but that person had emotions about *Pride and Prejudice*. I have emotions about *Pride and Prejudice*, <laughs> um, and I have a lot of emotions about about Fitzgerald. I have a lot of emotions about. About uh, The Great Gatsby. And in the 20 years that I've had and held The Great Gatsby, those emotions have kind of ranged from being both good and bad, oh, sure. um, both both, ang- both anger and sorrow, and just a lot of love. And that's what it comes down well, to well, one love of
1: the that can be disappointed. Sometimes. I, I was talking with my partner Dale about this earlier tonight. One of the things that happens when you're in high school is that you get stuck with the shortest books by major writers because they're the only ones they can. And, and, and Gatsby happens to be a pretty good book. It's better than being forced to read Silas Marner, which is the worst George Eliot novel, which you get assigned in high school because it's the shortest one, or The Red Pony, or Of Mice and Men. I mean, Steinbeck had some great works. Those are not them. But the fact, <laughs> is, the fact is, in high school, you're given books by famous writers that are not very long, and that doesn't necessarily mean uh, the right thing. Gatsby, fortunately, is both Fitzgerald's best and shortest book, (laughs) Uh, and, and so I guess you were lucky to be able to get that in high school because the rest of us, probably on Before Your Time, the rest of us were reading Silas Effing Marner. (laughs) <laughs> they
2: made a, a straight Ethan Frome. I, I don't know what you're complaining about. <laughs> <laughs> Ethan Frome is a Midwestern nightmare. It, it, it
1: really is. And, and she's mm-hmm. actually a pretty good writer
0: when you get to the other novel.
2: Oh, no. Edith Wharton's, she, Edith Wharton's amazing, but Ethan Frome is a nightmare. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um,
0: well, on the day when I found out that John Steinbeck wrote a werewolf novel, which I never knew. Yeah.
1: Oh, I saw that. That's going to be exciting. He wrote, he
0: wrote an Arthurian I think, novel. I don't think. I don't think they're going to let it be published, though. Probably the Steinbeck not. werewolf novel. Yeah,
1: are you going to try?
2: It? Are you going to? Are you going to read it if if you can find it? If, if link- I could
0: find it, I would. Yes, of course. Yeah. But that makes me wonder as well. There's one last thing, and it's this: you've written a fantasy interpolated interpolated interpo- interpol- interpol- interpolated story in The Chosen Beautiful. Is there another another fantasy world or another fictional world you would write in if you could, if there was no other consideration mm-hmm. than just doing it?
2: Okay, this came up in a talk that I had a while back. I'm kind of sorry that if this was the only Gatsby thing I got to write, I didn't get, get to write the Gatsby Lovecraft crossover of my dreams.
0: So, why don't someone you write the, do the, the Gatsby Lovecraft crossover? Because I
2: want someone else to do it, because I'm actually kind of bad at horror. Like,
0: it's, <laughs> Collaboration is the thing.
2: Do, yes.
0: Find yourself yes. a horror writer.
2: <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I don't know I'm, I'm I don't to think actually, if
1: anything like that. Uh, no. no, but I
2: think, but do you know who would be amazing at it, though? Cassandra Kah. Cassandra Caw, who wrote Hmm. um, Food of the Gods, she would do an amazing Gatsby Lovecraft rip.
0: You guys should cross the streams. (laughs) That's what you should do anyway.
2: She said my cat was cute a few times, so maybe I should.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Have you tried to collaborate before? I'm sorry? Have you tried to collaborate before with anyone?
2: No, I've actually told uh, Diana that I don't want to and um, I would be bad at it and I'll set something on fire. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think that I have it in me to write with another human
0: being. Fair enough.
2: <laughs> it's good to know these things about yourself before something is on fire. Definitely. I have to, uh,
1: you, you you got me thinking of all kinds of things now, which I'd like to see you write in. I mean, it's, why don't you write an Edith Wharton novel? Why don't you do The House of Mirth with vampires? I mean, there are all kinds of things that are... Uh, you
2: know, if Ethan Frome is a vampire, I might like it better. <laughs> well, Ethan Frome... Um, <laughs>
1: Those, those All those characters and stuff they made us read in high school were vampires. They were sapping away our love of literature as we read them. <laughs> uh, Steinbeck was a great writer, but not the Red Pony. I'm sorry. It's just... Well, well,
2: on on that- the Winter is too hard for Midwestern <laughs> teens. That, that's too hard. It's, it's too on mean. On the
0: terrible piece of Steinbeck sledging, Gary, we, we, might, right. we, might, call it, we might wind it up. Nivo, sure. thank you so much for making time to talk to us today. We genuinely thank you so appreciate it. Me. It's been wonderful. The Chosen the Beautiful is in the World. As I said, please order, pre-order, buy, share, talk about, be in love with it. And Siren Queen will be out next year. But for now, Gary. For now, this has been the Coot Street Podcast.